0: Now at chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. Let's read that together. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of, the, of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed king, or David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And David said on that day, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, The blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the millow inward. And David became greater and greater for the Lord the God of hosts was with him. OK. So let's do a quick recap of what happened in between. Chapters two to four, it was really action-packed. So here's what happens. Saul is dead. And recognizing that Saul is dead, but David is still this rival to the throne, um, quickly, Abner, who is Davids, or sorry, Saul's military leader, decides he has to do something. So he installs one of Saul's only remaining sons, Ishbosheth, to the throne. Right away, he says, We need a king, right? Because David is a threat. The Philistines are still here. They've just beaten uh, them in a war. So we have to have a king. So he makes Ishbosheth the king. But, oh, well, this actually sparks off a civil war. The civil war then happens. David is fighting with, with Ishbosheth through their leaders, Abner leading the Israelite army, and they call it the north of Israel Israel, and the south Judah. So Abner leading the north versus Joab leading David's armies, and they're fighting. So there's a big civil war happening for the crown but somewhere along the line abner loses the confidence of ishbosheth the king begins to think abner is a little bit too self-seeking and he i think he may have had reason to think that so he loses the confidence and abner is very upset very offended so he defects he leaves ishbosheth and goes secretly to david and says hey i can bring all of israel to join you just say the word because we're no longer interested in ishbosheth david agrees and Abner goes on his way. However, Joab, David's military leader, doesn't like this because a couple, well, earlier in the the chapters, Joab's brother, Azahel, was killed by Abner in in one of the battles they were having during the Civil War. Joab is unhappy, so he goes, he chases down Abner and kills him. So now, we have a problem. Abner is dead, who is supposed to broker a unity between the two, two nations. And then things get worse for the northern kingdom, for Israel, because their king, Ishbosheth is murdered by two of his guards who think they're, going, they're doing David a favor by doing this. So Israel now has no military leader, no king, but they still have the Philistines threatening and David. So rather than wait, rather than wait for David to come and invade and take the crown or wait for the Philistines to come, they decide to be preemptive and they approach David with a, with, with a compromise. Come and be our king. That's where we now sit at chapter 5. You should read those chapters there. If you read these books, they sound like, like they're better than fiction because they're real, like they're awesome, incredible stories. Anyway, side note. Now, the reason this is important is because at this point in Israel's history, they are in a place of uncertainty. They don't know what the, city, what the nation's going to look like. They're divided on what the nation should look like. That's why there's a civil war. So they're trying to grope their way to unity amidst division. And that is very important for Canada today. Because we find ourselves in a not too dissimilar position. Prior to the election that just happened here in Canada, the federal election a few weeks ago, prior to that, just before, four days before the election, a poll indicated that 66% of Canadians agreed with that statement. We are more divided than ever. The day after the election, that number jumped to 71%. So we clearly feel like the nation is divided. Right? I think could—I don't think I need to prove any stats. I think we can feel that. And it's actually borne out in the election results. Regardless of where you stand, did you know for the first time in Canadian history, the governing party, in this case it's the Liberals, the governing party has never ever won the election with less than 40% of the popular vote. And usually it's 50 and 60, sometimes as high as 70. This time, the Liberals won with 33.7% of the popular vote. And what that means is, we don't know what we want. We're divided, so we're spreading our vote amongst various parties because we actually have no consensus. There's no unity here in the country. We're not sure what we want tomorrow to look like. So we're struggling. So I think it's quite important to look at this, po- this moment in Israel's history when God is healing and bringing some unity, or trying to, and saying, what, what can we learn from this movement of unity that may be able to help us? And, um, and that's what we're going to do. And if we look carefully here, which we're going to try to, we're going to see Three things. Uh, three things. The basis of unity, the confidence for unity, and then the power for unity. OK? So the foundation of unity, the basis of it, the confidence of it, or for it, and then power. So basis, confidence and power. Let's jump in. The very first thing, if you noticed it when I was reading it, or if you' read this before, is it's difficult to get away from the marital language. You remember in Genesis 2:23, there's a wedding. God brings Eve to Adam. In fact, we'll put up on the screen, it's Genesis 2, 23. And it says, he brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And when you then hear Israel coming to David and taking the Eve side and saying to him, well, we could put that up on the screen as well, behold, we are your bone and flesh. It's in, it's, the language is too obvious to miss. And they're taking the feminine side. So they are saying, you are Adam, we are Eve, we are part of you. So they come and they, they, this is a marriage happening. They're, they're depicting this, the metaphor for unity is clothed and wrapped in this idea of marriage, in this whole passage. So, what is the foundation for a wedding? Think of if you're married, or if you are going to be married. When you get to the altar, just before the actual ceremony, what gets you there? Well, there's Common ground. There's things that hopefully have led you to think that there's a good idea. It's a good idea to get married, and some of the common ground that we see depicted here that may help us understand unity in, in, as a whole is first intimacy. So this idea of being the bone and flesh of one another is shrouded. It's wrapped in this idea that we are from one another, literally. Right? Eve comes from Adam. So there's this intimacy, and Israel is saying to David, "You're one of us." So there's already this intimacy, and you could even go further. Bone and flesh symbolize strength and weakness. So you're not just my kin, but we struggled together. We have fought together, we fought against one another, we have been strong and weak together. So there's this intimacy, this vulnerability that they're acknowledging. And this is a foundation for any unity, that you are, you're, kin, you're, you're related in some way, if not physically, by experience. Okay? And that happens here at the church. We're bound, right? Are we bound by a common experience? Hopefully. Most of us. But the second thing is history. They are bound also by their history. Notice, they said, say to David, um, "It was you. It's kind of a romantic comedy. It was you all along, David. It was you all along. It's very, very sentimental. But that's what they say. Even when Saul was here, you're the one who brought us, who brought, brought us out or, t- or took us out and brought us in. And that language, again, is not a- accidental. Who else was it who brought Israel out of Egypt? and who then brought them into the promised land. The same language is used to speak of Moses and Joshua. So Israel is almost saying to David, this is what you are, you're kind of you're our, you're, you're leading us, you brought us out, and you're bringing us in. So that language, again, is not accidental. It's just theologically, they're, they're, it's a new beginning starting. It's a new opportunity here, just like the Exodus. You're the one who brought us out, and now you're going to bring us into this new pro- era of prosperity. So it's a common history they share. But then, probably most importantly, one of the things we miss often is there's also a sense of God's will. God has to be in it. If a marriage is started without God in it, it's going to struggle at best. And they acknowledge, they say to David, "It was God has said you, this, you would do this. You, they've heard about the, the prophecy and, and Samuel's anointing him, obviously, you know, all the way back in chapter 16 of the first book. So they're acknowledging this, that God is on this, is in this. But, then, once those common areas, right, so intimacy, history, God's calling, those things bind them, bind them together. But then you walk up to the altar, and what comes after the good feelings is vows. You stand up before one another, and you make promises to one another, commitments. And this is precisely what you're seeing in this passage. They then turn to David, and they say, so all the elders came to, David, uh, to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them. And it wasn't just a covenant but they said, you are going to be shepherd over us. So the vow is this, you will be a shepherd over us, and we will be sheep to you. And a shepherd, of course, to put it very simply, his job was to care for and protect the sheep. And so long as he was a good shepherd, they would follow him and know his voice, right? And we'll talk more about this at the end, because it doesn't really work out that way. But this is the idea, we make a covenant, this is the, the rules. We're together, we have this common history and all these things, but now let's bind ourselves together. You be a good shepherd, and we will be sheep. So they bind themselves in that way. And then this is what you see they all they ratify the covenant of marriage. It's going beautifully, they're happy. And this unity is based on this intimacy, this common history, God's call, and commitments. And what is a church? We gather together because once you become a Christian, this is your history, right? This is your family line. So we can, without any weirdness, say Israel's struggles are our struggles because they're part of our family line now. So we share this common history. So when somebody comes to Redeemer from outside, although we may not know them, we have, there's kinship. We know each other because we, we, we have common parentage. And then there's hopefully going to be some sort of an intimacy there, and we hopefully God has called us together and brought us in together. And then we make vows. This is why membership is actually quite important, because then we commit to one another. We're saying it's not just a consumer relationship. You'll stay here as long as I don't offend you, or the music is good, or the coffee. Well, coffee's never good at a church. But I haven't even tasted the coffee here necessarily because it's covid but um so we bind each to each other so when you you become a member of redeemer what you're saying is i'm committed to supporting the ministry to being a servant to being part of it but you're also saying i want the leadership of redeemer to speak into my life the moment you become a member you say carl and elders it's okay for us to tell you it's okay for you to tell me when something is not quite right or when or to encourage us and this is the vow that's part of the unity but it moves on. If that's the foundation for unity, this commonness that we have, then we have this confidence we need. And here's where it's going to get a little touchy. When, um, when a couple gets married in Genesis 2, it says that they will leave their mother and their father and they become one. Now, when a new couple becomes married, those newlywed years and all the years, but surely in those first few years, it is important that they signal to one another through their actions, and through their words, and through everything, that they are committed to one another. And so, parents, you must butt out to an extent. It's okay, parents should be, of course, you should love your kids and be there all the time. However, not all the time. Not everybody loves Raymond all the time, right? For anybody in the vintage who knows that. And it's not because you're, you're leaving your kids, but you need to understand that that marriage that starts with a common history needs to be then built up on current acts where they signal to one another that they are actually committed to each other and not to their parents. The husband or the wife is not going to be influenced by their parents who are just always talking, or to their friends, or to their career. So those early years are important that they go out of their way, as, as husband and wife, to show that I am for you. I'm willing to lay everything down for you. So parents sometimes need to butt out, friends need to butt out just a little, uh, just to allow that room to happen. And this is why what happens after you get married, even in Israel, you find a house to live in. You find a separate place. And David's first act after becoming king is he finds a new capital for his country. And it's not by accident that he chooses not to stay in Hebron. So if you know anything about what's going on is this. Israel is a little nervous, right? He's, they're, they're saying they want to join David, and David is already the king of Judah, He was crowned king of Judah in chapter 2. So, is it possible, and not just possible, I'm going to show later, it's definitely there, they're a little uneasy because they don't want to just join Judah and find out that they're second-class citizens, right? They want to be equal partners, just like a, a husband or a wife doesn't want to get married and find out, oh, I'm marrying your parents too, I'm marrying your career too. So in the same way, they're a little uneasy, and David is wise, he understands this, because he's in Hebron, his power base, which is in southern Israel. We can put it up on the screen, there should be a map, I think. I don't know if you can see that, but oh yeah, you can. So Judah's in the south, Israel's at the top, Jerusalem. He intentionally moves his power base from Hebron, which is staunchly in center of Judah. And he says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and build it closer to the border where it's, it's incredible. Not just geographically is it more neutral. But it's actually not even occupied by any Jews. It's occupied by Jebusites. And he goes to a place that is intentionally, when he, when he makes it his capital, he can't be accused of trying to be pro-Juda or pro-Israel. It's an incredibly shrewd move. And not just that, it's even more, he goes even more out of his way, and, well, maybe it's not just him, maybe it's God doing it. When David goes to Jerusalem and conquers it, do you know what he's doing? In Judges 1.21, Israel was supposed to have conquered the entire promised land, but they didn't. They they failed, and you find in the first chapter of Judges, they're they're doing a lot of mop-up expeditions, trying to clean up the area and get the Canaanites out. And the Jebusites are a Canaanite tribe. But in chapter 1, verse 21 of Judges, it says they were unable. The tribe of Benjamin couldn't drive the Jebusites out of Israel. So when David then comes at this moment of unity and he throws the Jebusites out, he is effectively completing the conquest. And so we're seeing David not just being a wise political maneuverer, but in doing this, there's a sense in Israel saying, my goodness, this is like he's, he's fulfilling what God has said we should have done a long time ago, but we were unable to do. So there's these dual parts that are going on. And it's important. It's important that he's done this because Israel needs to know that they are not going to become second-class citizens of Judah. But David also needs to know that he is not beholden to any tribe. No one controls me if I'm a king. That's what David is trying to signal here. I am a free agent. I am here to rule on the behest of God alone. And this is why, you notice what he called—they they call the city? Zion. Zion, historically, and all through the Psalms, if you look at when it's used, you'll see it almost always speaks right afterwards about God's presence. Zion is the term, well, it's for Israel, but it's a term that's most, most um, connected to God's dwelling place. So not Israel's dwelling place, not Judah's, God. It's a neutral site. It, it, it defies political categories. It's not blue or red. It's not, liber- it's not Israel or Judah. It's God's dwelling place. And more than that, it's the city of David. See, the language, it's incredibly shrewd. If this is David doing this, he knows, he's, he knows what he's doing. He's a, he's a shrewd political maneuver, which may be why I think Israel's a little worried about him. But we'll talk about that in a moment. So, in the church then, we, it's not enough, you see, that we gather and we're all connected about doctrine. We all agree on what's, you know, uh, how we get saved or what we think about communion. That's That's important, but it's not enough. You see, because what we need to do is we have to, If you come here and you agree with all of our doctrine, High Redeemer, it's going to be a pretty cold place. The doctrine is important, but we have to then take the time to realize that we're covenanting together. And if we want to have a crisis-proof relationship as a church that is not going to be broken by the many divisions that are swarming around, it has to be beyond the doctrine, and the doctrine has to then influence our actions. And we have to then be praying for one another, inviting people over, and helping to make you feel safe because you may have been burned at another church. And let's face it, we're going to let you down. It's inevitable. But we work hard. You know, if, if you marry a woman who comes from a family where the parents broke up and she's a little uneasy about how faithful you will be because her father was unfaithful, you work hard to show her that you can be trusted because you want her to be at ease. You want her to flourish in the marriage. Right? And it's the same thing here at the church. Doctrine is not enough. Doctrine is not enough to save us. Well, Christ, doctrine doesn't save us. Christ saves us. But we need to then be, if we want to be united we need to go these other, this extra mile and start caring for one another in this way. So, if that's the foundation and the confidence, how we build up this confidence for unity, then what is the power for it? Because we have a problem. Um, it crumbles immediately. This unity that looks so nice on paper here in this chapter and these verses falls apart almost immediately. Within three verses, we read that David has taken for himself many wives, which is a direct contradiction of Deuteronomy 17 that says, kings... Don't take many wives. And it's not by accident we're being told that. We're being shown that the unity cannot survive on its own for some reason. In fact, all the books of Samuel, the books of Kings, the books of Chronicles were written during the exile. And the folks in exile, the Jews, were trying to explain to, them, to the crowds and to themselves, how did we get here? How did we become exiled? So they're trying to show us continually the shortcomings of the kings. They can't save us. They're trying to show us that we don't need a better king, we need a transformed heart, which is where the prophets will then come and start talking about transformation rather than a new king. Right? So, he falls right away, and you're going to notice the simple and almost naive faith of David in the first book of Samuel disappears in the second, because power doesn't allow him to be as naive. I'm not saying he was naive. Well, he was. It's almost childlike sometimes. Isn't it? how David just trusts? And that's wonderful. But once he gets power, you're going to realize it... It shows up fewer. There's fewer occasions where David is the old David, um, even though he still has some incredible moments. And Israel does the same thing. You see, not only will David show that he's interested in himself more than he is in Israel at times, but Israel will do the same thing. They vow fidelity, but they're the ones who are supporting all of his rivals. They immediately start... Anyone who comes as a rival to David, it seems Israel is like, yep, he's good, let's follow him. So, the union breaks down, the marriage breaks down. And where does the marriage break down? The same place all of our marriages break down, vows. They don't keep their vows. And remember what the vow was, this shepherding idea. We will be shepherds, you will be shepherd over us and we will be sheep to you. There's this mutual fidelity that they're saying that they're gonna have for one another and it falls almost immediately. And you can see the cracks of it. You know, I don't think I have it up here, but have you ever looked at a pinhead under a microscope? You know, the pin looks really smooth until it's under a microscope, and then you see it's, like, jagged, and it's all dulled at the end. And if we look carefully at this marriage ceremony we just talked about, there's actually cracks all over it. Because you have to ask yourself this question. Why does Israel only come to David after they have no other option? Right? When their king is dead and their military leaders are dead, then they they come to David. And is it a marriage of convenience? Are they just saying, well... Philistines are coming and if we let David just run ramshot over us and he destroys us then he'll just impose his will so but let's meet him halfway let's avoid the trouble and make it make good so that maybe he doesn't destroy us and we and we have a better a better better terms of peace maybe that's what's happening and i think we know that's happening because of the very language that's used a small little one they don't call him king when they speak directly to him they say come and be prince over me a nagid they never say melech, and yet the very next verse, the word melech, king, comes up three times in a row. So, is it possible in their very language they're saying, let's not, we're a little hesitant to make you king, but you know, we want you to be our leader, but. You know. And if that sounds suspect, it gets even more, more interesting because in chapter two, when Judah makes David their king, there's no conditions. They just say, be our king, and it's done. We can put it up on the screen, I think. Do I have it? Two, four? Up there? There we are. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. That's it. No conditions. But here, the Israelites, the, the tribes of the, of the north, come and say, come and let's make a covenant. You're going to be a shepherd. Are they aware that David is shrewd? Are they aware that David has no problem being brutal? Okay? And you're going to see it even more as, the months, as these chapters go on. They know David is wise, shrewd, a great political maneuverer. Is it that they're saying, we need a covenant here because... We know how you fought against us. We know who you are, so you're gonna, if you're going to be a king, you have to be a shepherd over us. Let's make a covenant, so that basically, let's make this conditional. You have to be this, and then we'll be this, you know. And there's, it's interesting that those things are put into Israel's mouth, but not into the ones of Judah. Now, the reason that the covenant falls apart is because exactly what I just said. Both sides, Israel and David. Like it or not, even in their best moments, it's nice that they say nice things and they want to be better. But both of them show that they think the covenant is conditional. It's like I've said before, if I go to a coffee shop and I like their coffee and their atmosphere and their prices, that's good, but the moment I find a better coffee shop with better prices and better coffee, I'm going to go there. Because my commitment to them is consumeristic. It's conditional upon my being satisfied. And because both sides see... The covenant as conditional they're willing to cheat on each other all the time you're not men think about this in marriages you're not the husband that i think you should be or you're not the wife that i think you should be so why should i be the right one for you i will be a good husband to you so long as you are the wife i need but if you're not different coffee shop right well it sounds harsh but that's we're seeing it everywhere right and this is our relationships have become increasingly conditional including in the church so here, well, let me explain first, let's see what Jesus says first, before I get to what we do. So when Jesus brings up the good shepherd, remember that part in John 10, he says, there's the, the good shepherd and the hired shepherd. He says the hired hand, most, and he's right, most shepherds in the ancient world were hired. They didn't own the sheep. They were hired to look after the sheep. He says the downside of that is they're only going to protect the sheep so long as they are willing to bear the, the burden. But the moment the wolf is a little too big, or the threat is a little too big, they're running. And that's because they're not committed to the sheep. It's just a commercial relationship. And, but then Jesus uses incredible wording in John 10. He says, however, I am the good shepherd. I know my own. See, he doesn't speak about the sheep as being something that benefit him, but as him being someone who benefits the sheep. They're mine. If you hear me say, this is my Sarah. My, well, I would say all my kids, but there's too many of them for me to, it'll take 10 minutes. If I say my, then you know it's a special relationship, right? Because they're mine. And when when Jesus is saying, he's saying, you see, the only way to have unity is if you stop seeing the other person, be it a a spouse, be it a church member, as someone who's just out there, you know, somebody else, or, or a consumer. I'm here because it allows me to flourish. It makes me feel good at this church. You see, the moment we start thinking like that, we're very close to slipping into this consumer ideal because what will happen is you'll leave when something goes wrong. And what Jesus is saying is if we're going to be united as a country, as a people, as a church, that we need to stop to move from seeing, being hired hands to actually being, seeing each other's ownership, that you belong to... I mean, the world doesn't like this, and I know feminism doesn't like it when we say a wife belongs to a husband and vice versa. I don't care if they don't like it. That's the language of the Bible. We belong to one another. We are knit to one another, and that's not to to oppress the other person, but to show that we don't let them go. You see, it's easy to say when somebody at the church who you've been a good friend with um, has something a, a sin comes into their life. They start drinking. They cheat on their spouse. They, I don't know, they don't get vaccinated, whatever. Something happens that it's easy for you to say, I'm cutting them off. I can't believe they would do this. I'm gone. But what if that person was your child? Would you cut them off? No, the relationship might change, but you wouldn't walk out the door. You'd still talk to them. You'd still care for them. You'd still try to walk through things. I remember hearing the, the mother of a serial killer named Jeffrey Dahmer, a cannibal. And when they asked her, what do you think about your son? You know what she said? I know all the horrible things he did, but he's my son. And I'm not, I'm not obviously not condoning cannibalism. But what I am saying is, do you see if we saw each other in that way, would we be as harsh with one another? Would we be as easy to say, get out of the church, we don't like what you said. (sighs) Come on, we have to grow up. We can't be that way. We're showing we're just like the world when we do that. And yes, the relationship has to change. And sometimes there's a reason for discipline and people can't be part of the church. I uh, I understand that. But I think we escalate things to the point of exclusion before Christ would. Sometimes. So I think unity is bearing this. And the answer, I think, how do we do it, though? How do we pause? It's so difficult to do. And I think the answer comes in the taunt in this passage. I wasn't going to mention the taunt, but it's too big not to. So David goes to, Israel, to Jerusalem, and he's going to invade it, and they mock him, right? which is classic... Uh, Classic tactic, and they say, oh, don't worry, even the blind and the lame here will will repel you. Your, your forces are so weak, even the handicapped can do it. That's Sorry if it's insensitive, that's there. So it's a taunt. David then picks up the taunt and turns it back and says, you are the blind and lame, and I, anyone who wants to come with me, let's get up this water spout and let's go up and, and, and destroy these the blind and the lame. And then he says something interesting, that sometimes commentators take the wrong way. They make it sound like David... Is like a, a bigot or, or somebody who's against handicap. Like has a problem with people who are handicapped. That's not what he's saying. When he says the blind and the lame will, shall not enter the house, he's not saying he's not going to let people. I mean, in a couple chapters, he's going to take the crippled son of Jonathan, Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth, and he's going to elevate him. So it can't be what he's saying. What he is saying is, I am from anyone who resists the king is not welcome in the house. The Jebusites are resisting the king. So you're not welcome in the house when I build it. And this points to you and I. You, if, as a Christian, you read that, and if you see it in, the, in that light, you begin to realize you don't belong in the house. You resist the king every day. Every time we sabotage unity in the church or in our communities and our families because of our agendas or whatever it is, we resist the king's efforts to unify under his son. And as a result, if you resist the king, you don't deserve to be in the house. And yet we look and we see Christ come. And Christ comes and he is treated like we ought to be. The shame that the blind and the lame would have had in the ancient culture. Christ heaps on himself so that when you come before him, if you trust in Christ, the shame is gone and you can enter the house though you don't deserve it. You're treated like like you're loyal to the crown, even though you resist him constantly, and we, we all do. And that is the only hope. See, because the culture is going to tell us continually that a good Christian, a good Christian, we as the church are known by the hills we die on. Right? That's what we're hearing now. That church is supposed to harden against the culture. It's a lie. The Bible literally says you're to be known by your love. Your love. And yes, love can hold, love doesn't allow everything. Love is hard on sin. But we must become a church that cares more about unity than we care about being right and disunity. And I know I'm gonna get calls about this because people to say, but what about, I'm not against drawing hard lines. I hope you've seen that over the last 10 months. But I am against creating hard lines that the Bible doesn't create. And that's something we have to learn. If we're ever gonna be united as a church, first and foremost, I'm not accountable for the, for the government entirely. I am accountable for you. And we need to figure this thing out. And when unity breaks, Uh, The only way unity should break is when God says so, not when I have hit my limit, when I've said, nope, I can't bear this sin. I'm going to break company with this person. Not a good answer. We only break fellowship with one another when God says break fellowship, and that's a hard line. And I think we do pretty well. I think Redeemer is pretty well, but we're broken. I don't think we do it nearly as well as we should be. But praise be to God that he didn't say, you know what, they sin too much, I'm leaving. I'm getting down off this cross. I'll carry this much sin, but not that much. It's too much. Thank goodness that he didn't say that to us. And because he didn't, we have to be very careful if we're going to say the same thing. Okay?